Dear friends, let us pray together. Dear Jesus, we need you. Please come among us and heal us. Please teach us your way. Amen. I must confess I've always found it hard to picture the events described in our gospel text today. Just how did Jesus and the disciples travel about from village to village? Did they always have a big crowd around them? Or did they sometimes blend in with other travelers? And what did the people think when Jesus or the disciples showed up in their worship spaces? It is especially hard to imagine how this might take place in our society today. What would we think about a group going from place to place healing people and claiming that God's way of life is coming to to place right now? Surely this would be a welcome message, one that everyone would receive with joy. And of course, many people did. But there were some who did not. In fact, it is astonishing to read how quickly the religious and political leaders from Jerusalem were troubled by Jesus and set about trying to destroy him. In Mark, this happens already in chapter 3, as Jesus' ministry is just getting started. And if we read further in Matthew 10, Jesus warns the disciples that they that as they go out to minister, they will encounter opposition. He is sending them out as sheep among wolves. They must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Why? Why were these leaders so threatened by Jesus? This too has long been baffling to me. Why did Jesus encounter so much opposition? How could anyone be offended by a message of forgiveness and healing? I have come to realize this only makes sense if we understand the social and political reality of that time. The fact that people were living under a brutal Roman occupation, which was overseen and justified by the religious establishment based in Jerusalem and especially in the temple. While many were no doubt glad for this temple, as it gave them some sense of pride and a way to continue worshiping their God, it also sustained a vast commercial enterprise, which the temple priests could use to their own benefit. Indeed, these authorities held the keys to forgiveness and healing, which required everyone to sacrifice at the temple, pay temple taxes, and keep themselves pure. For those who lived far from Jerusalem and struggled every day to find work and food, these measures were very difficult, often leaving them further in debt and suffering increased hunger and illness. What was especially deadly was the feeling that they were to blame for their misfortune. No doubt many felt they were incurably sinful as they were unable to maintain the purity and holiness they thought God required. Or maybe they didn't have the means to offer the necessary gifts and sacrifices. How indeed could God forgive them? How could God heal them? 
No wonder then that Jesus and the disciples were so popular among the common people. What a reassuring message for them to hear that God was not far away in a distant temple. Rather, God had come near to them and was present even now among them, healing them and casting out their demons. Moreover, it was not their fault that they suffered illness and disabilities. This was not God's will for them. Rather, God wanted them to flourish, to have daily bread, health, and life. Still, this teaching was not entirely free or easy. As Moses and the prophets had long encouraged, Jesus also called them to be generous with one another, sharing food and forgiving one another's debts. By caring for one another in solidarity and compassion in these ways, they could help one another survive and maintain some level of dignity. Yet these actions also meant stepping away from the expectations and control of their rulers who benefited from the temple complex and its collusion with Roman rule. If people could find healing and forgiveness from Jesus and from each other, they would no longer need to go to Jerusalem. If they started believing they were worthy children of God, they would no longer feel judged by the laws of purity and Sabbath-keeping. If they could organize and band together, they would no longer need to bow so quickly to the whims and dictates of the ruling class. They could seek changes and an end to some of the oppressive economic and religious practices which made some people so rich and others so poor. Indeed, I have found it helpful to imagine that Jesus' efforts to mobilize and save his people might have been similar to the struggle for civil rights and freedom in our own country during the 1950s and 60s, or even now in the ongoing struggle to affirm that black lives matter. In each of these situations, people have been claiming their worthiness as a child of God, with God-given rights to dignity, health, and life. It is important to stress here that this is not just about economic or social needs. Rather, these are fundamentally spiritual claims about who we are as women and men in relation to God and to each other. In this context, then, healing and forgiveness are not just about us as individuals, but these acts are intimately bound to the larger systems of which we are a part. As we read this text, then, we can imagine Jesus as a community organizer, a leader who emerged from among a suffering people to help them reclaim their heritage as children of God who could be healed and restored to full fellowship with God and one another. And because the need was so great, Jesus also equipped his disciples to do the same in order to build a larger movement aligned with God's will for justice and well-being. So what would Jesus say to us today? Where do we need healing and forgiveness, a restoration of relationship? 
especially during this time, this time of COVID-19 and protests against police brutality and white supremacy, which have revealed so much about the desperate realities at the core of our religious and national life. Where do we need a fresh and renewed understanding of the way of Jesus, the way of God? Let me speak first as a woman in the church. I have long known the struggle to find a loving God and a church community where I could feel at home. So I understand this connection between healing and forgiveness. For far too long, I have felt the judgment of being born a woman. For too much of my life, church leaders have judged this a failing, indeed an offense so great that nothing could be done to make me worthy of participating fully in church life. While much has changed, this message dies hard and requires ongoing healing work in my relationship to God and the church. Tragically, these realities are true for others as well, and even more so. There are so many people whom our society treats as unworthy and of little consequence. So many lives have been snuffed out because of the color of their skin. George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, Rakia Boyd, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, and the list goes on and on and on. Two of the most poignant signs I have seen during these recent protests are, being black is not a crime, and my blackness is not a sin. I find these signs so heartbreaking. What kind of world do we live in where people need to say this? as if their God-given skin color is considered dangerous or wrong. And yet, when so many people of color are killed so quickly, so carelessly, this is clearly the message they are being given. Unfortunately, too often we have failed to examine these societal messages and the unjust systems at work. Instead, we tend to blame the victim for what happens to them as if they should have done something, anything, to avoid being targeted. Just this month, Erica Littlewolf wrote in The Mennonite about how people tend to blame people of color for the high death rate they have experienced from COVID-19. There is the subtle suggestion that their increased vulnerability is due to their poor food and health habits. And I confess just how easy it is to consider this thought. When the system tends to work pretty well for you, it is hard to comprehend the obstacles which other people face. As Little Wolf explains, however, a Native American does not become diabetic out of thin air. Rather, this is the result of our government forcing people onto reservations away from their traditional food sources and then providing them with high calorie rations. We also know that trauma increases the risk of both mental and physical illness, 
leading to higher rates of depression, heart disease, stroke, cancer, and more. So how do we find healing? How do we turn away from that which is deadly and turn instead toward life in all its fullness? One effort I have started to follow is the Poor People's Campaign, led by Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris, this grassroots movement is calling for a moral revival and a return to the values which uphold and support life. In fact, this Saturday, June 20, they are holding a mass Poor People's Assembly and moral march on Washington. Of course, because of the pandemic, this is now a virtual digital gathering, which will hopefully receive wide coverage. Building on the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., this group is striving to lift up the voices and experiences of those who suffer poverty and violence. It is urging us to step away from the systems which continue to harm people and instead to bolster policies and practices which treat each of us as a beloved child of God. Practices like access to health care, living wages, investment in education and housing rather than in militarism, care for the environment, and addressing systemic racism. I admit I know little about what it takes to be part of, of a movement like this, but I believe it's time for me to start learning. The healing and salvation we need will require fundamental changes in our society, and this is so much bigger than any one of us. It will require us to work together and with others to step out of our comfort zones and risk doing new things, things which might rock the boat or get us in trouble. We might find ourselves hesitating, unsure about what this might mean for us and for our relationships. I wonder if that is how people felt when Jesus came to their village. Surely they were glad to see people healed, to feel God's blessing on their lives. They were even glad to share with their neighbors. But to question the religious and political authorities and their version of truth, to question their teaching about what God requires, could they afford to take this risk? Could they really dare to stop supporting the temple? What would happen to them and to their identity as Jews? What would happen to their relationships in the community? Would it be worth it? So here we are 2,000 years later, and the questions are so similar. We are so grateful for the healing and forgiveness Jesus offers. Yet, as the events of these past few months have shown, this salvation, this blessing, is not really possible until it includes all of us, all of our brothers and sisters. Our lives are so intertwined. This will require us to ask hard questions, to ask who is benefiting from our systems and who is being harmed. What needs to change so that all might breathe, might have life?
Jesus is inviting us into a new way of living, a new story about who God is and what God wants for us. May we listen carefully. May we allow Jesus to heal us and to give us the courage to keep walking with him along the way.